0: The word for this kind of meditation, vipassana, is from the Pali language. That's the dialogue, the dialect that said the Buddha spoke. The literal meaning of the word vipassana means seeing clearly. Passana means seeing, and the prefix vi va means clearly or with special clarity. I like the fact that that's what that word means, because we're not practicing a <coughs> meditation about some doctrine or dogma or belief. <coughs> what we're practicing is seeing clearly, or <coughs> seeing how things are, the nature of things. So we can understand meditation as being this process of investigation. <coughs> And it's an investigation of our bodies. We do that through awareness of the breath, through awareness of movement, through awareness of the different physical sensations that we feel. And with increasing concentration, we do it through an investigation of the more and more subtle kinds of energies which comprise the body. And to experience the body as a energy flow. It's an investigation of the mind. And we do that through awareness of thoughts, through awareness of emotions, through awareness of awareness, exploring the nature of consciousness itself. We investigate the nature of silence, My first teacher, Munindraji, once gave a three-hour talk on 21 kinds of silence, (laughs) just levels and levels and levels and levels of silence. As we embark on this investigation and the various talks and discussions we have about it, it's important to have an understanding of what we mean by the word mind because in English, the connotation we have for mind often has to do with intellect and thought and our heads in some way. But in Buddhist terminology, mind has a much broader meaning. And in many Asian languages, in fact, the word for heart and mind is the same. Somehow in English, we've created a duality of heart and mind. So it's important In hearing this word, that you think of it not as being limited to head functions, to intellect or thinking, but it really means heart-mind. It includes all of these things of thoughts and emotions and mind states and moods and consciousness itself. One of the things that becomes increasingly obvious as we settle into the practice is that even though our individual stories, our particular life stories are quite different, we have different backgrounds, different upbringing, different education, and so our particular conditioning is all different. But the nature of this heart-mind is the same. The pain in the knee is the same here in Bari as it was in the Buddha's time under the tree in Gaya. The nature of pain is the same. The nature of happiness, of love, of anger, of sadness, of stillness, of distraction, all of these qualities of the body and mind, the nature of the body and mind, we all have in common. And this is the very universe, universal aspect of the Dharma and the teachings. It's one of the things that's referred to in the expression, the expression of the Dharma being timeless that the nature of the mind and body does not change, even though our particular conditioning may be different. So there's a very interesting consequence of this, and that is the more we understand ourselves, the more we understand one another. The more we understand the nature of our own mind and our own body and how it's all working, the more we understand this in everyone else. So there are two perspectives in practice, two vantage points or understandings which illuminate this whole Dharma journey of ours. And they're perspectives that complement and fulfill each other. The first perspective that we bring to practice is the understanding of meditation as being a science of the mind. The power of the Buddha's enlightenment was that he saw so deeply and so clearly and so exactly how things are working, how this mind-body is working deep understanding of the true nature of things. And what he saw with such clarity is that our lives are not unfolding randomly or haphazardly or by accident. But actually our lives are unfolding lawfully. And this is one of the meanings of the word dharma. Dharma means law or the lawfulness of things. And one of the most important, most important laws that guide the unfolding of our lives is the law of cause and effect. Meaning, actions have consequences. Now we see this and understand this very Clearly in the physical world, I mean a lot of science is based on this basic law of cause and effect. When you think just in some very simple ways of the application of this law in with regard to the environment. You now we pollute the environment with all kinds of toxins and poisons What happens? There are consequences. There are consequences to our quality of life, to our health. There are, of course, many, many examples of this happening around the world. But one that was particularly sad and poignant for me. Years ago, when I was still practicing in India, and just after my Peace Corps days, I traveled to Nepal. At that time, this was in the uh, 60s, it was so, Kathmandu Valley in particular, was so beautiful and so clean. There was a pristine quality to the life there. Going back 20 years later, 25 years later, quite recently, it was astounding, it was shocking to me, the level of pollution. People were walking around with masks because they didn't want to breathe. The air, it had gotten so uh, polluted. Now, of course, this is replicated many, many places, not to say it's just in Kathmandu. And it's not that it happens by accident, it's the consequence of certain actions. Things have effect, but so often we're not paying attention to the effect of our actions. And so we suffer the consequences when they're not skillful. And in the other way, when we take care of the environment, when we clean up the air and clean up the water, and the quality of our lives improves. It seems so simple. You know, it seems like such an obvious truth, and it's so amazing that somehow, as a world culture, we're not paying attention to this. And this is just one small arena of activity. Just like these physical laws in nature, of which our relationship to the environment is just, just one, the Buddha was also pointing out that there's also laws of cause and effect that operate in the mind. Again this big mind, the mind heart. He understood through his own investigation what are the underlying causes of suffering. What are the actions that bring suffering as a result and what are the actions that bring happiness as a result. The suffering and happiness in our lives is not happening by accident, or randomly. It's happening lawfully. And to the extent that we can understand the law, the Dharma, we have the opportunity to make some wise choices in our lives. One aspect of deep and genuine wisdom, and it's both meditative wisdom but also very practical, daily life wisdom, is when we understand the relationship of our actions and the results that they bring. When we're living in delusion about this or ignoring it, or thinking that actions don't have consequences, then we're living blindly. But it's also not so easy to figure this out. Because sometimes the consequences of actions are not so obvious. And one arena in which they're not obvious is in the very arena of happiness. Because we can be doing things that make us happy in the moment But actually are the cause the causes for much future suffering. And just a very simple example of that. If we think of all the different and varied kinds of addictions we might have, you know, they might make us very happy in the moment, give us pleasure in the moment, but are the cause of future suffering for us. And likewise, we can be doing things which are difficult in the moment or even painful in the moment. Like the first day of a retreat. (laughs) You know, and all the mind-body pain and difficulty and everything you've gone through today. Something can be difficult in the moment and actually be the cause of a real, genuine, deep future happiness. And so when the Buddha was pointing this out, I found it very interesting to reflect that happiness in the moment is not the measure of whether an action is worth doing or not. So if happiness in the moment is not the measure, what is the measure? How do we determine what course of action is really for our well-being, our welfare. As with so many other things, the Buddha just laid it out so clearly. He talked of two kinds of happiness. One to be pursued, and the other to be avoided. And I'll, I'll just quote from his teaching. He said, when I observed that in pursuit of such happiness, unwholesome states of mind increased and wholesome states of mind decreased. That kind of happiness I avoided. In other words, he was paying attention to the quality of his mind. If in the pursuit of some kind of happiness we're simply cultivating more greed, more hatred, more fear, more anxiety... That kind of happiness is to be avoided because we're cultivating unwholesome states leading to suffering. He said, When I observed that unwholesome mind states decreased and wholesome ones increased, that kind of happiness is to be cultivated. So it's so simple when we see it that the measure. For our actions, for bringing wisdom to our choices, is an observation of our own mind. Again, this big heart mind. What is being cultivated? Are they skillful states or unskillful states? And the Buddha clarified this even further for us, if we still are not quite clear. He said, what most determines the skill or unskill of an action is the motivation behind it. What is the motivation behind our actions? The a Buddhist saying that I find sums up a tremendously important aspect of our journey, of our spiritual journey. And the saying is, everything rests on the tip of motivation. Motivation is so important because that's what determines whether an action brings suffering back to us or happiness back to us. It takes a lot of courage and a lot of willingness and a lot of openness to look at our own motivations. We all like to think we're motivated purely and nobly and generously and altruistically. And, but the truth of the matter is that often we're not. You know, often our motives are selfish and greedy and fearful and lots of other things as well. And our task is simply to be honest enough and courageous enough to take a look to be really open what is going on in any moment. What is the motive? When we see the unskillful ones, we choose not to act on them when we can. When we see the wholesome ones, we cultivate them. And this is the, this is the juice of our practice. This is the life that we can lead. This is what brings practice into life. There's a biologist, kind of a leading-edge biologist, at least in certain arenas. His name is Rupert Sheldrake. And I was just reading one little piece that he wrote, and he has a theory called morphic resonance, which is a great-sounding phrase. <laughs> what it means, as I understood it, and what he observed in the worlds of biology, what he observed was that once an event happens in the development of life forms, that once something happens, it becomes much easier and more likely for that very same thing to be replicated and happen again. So something could not have happened for millions of years, and then there's an emergence. Of one kind or another. And once that happens, it happens much more frequently. And when I read about that, I thought, what? That's just like the law of karma in some, in some way. You know, that every action we do makes it that much easier for that very same action to happen again. Which is, of course, what we know as the tremendously powerful power of habit. We get into habit patterns, which then run our lives. When we understand this, it gives some impetus or it suggests some urgency in the development of our attention so that we begin to pay attention we we'll have a careful awareness. Okay, what am I cultivating now? What am I strengthening? What am I making it, making easier to happen again? Is it anger? Every time I get lost in anger, I'm just strengthening that. Is it ill will? Is it generosity? Is it kindness? Can we pay attention to what we're doing? To our heart, mind, to our motives? Because this is and becomes the process of transformation for us. A beautiful implication of the understanding Dharma as law, of understanding that there is a lawfulness to the unfolding of our lives, the beautiful implication is that each one of us can follow and walk on this path to awakening because it's lawful. We do this, 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 and this, and the mind gets purified. We do this, 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 and this, and we suffer. And so it takes awakening, it takes liberation, it takes freedom, it takes the path of happiness, out of the domain of some special few people who somehow were born lucky, you know, and okay, liberation is for them and not for us, understanding the lawfulness of the Dharma to the extent that we see it and understand it and live in accordance with that law, the whole path of awakening opens for us. And this is the great invitation in the Buddha's teachings. He's saying... There's no need to believe, it's not a question of belief. It's a question of coming to see for oneself. One of the most enticing remarks that my first teacher made, I was going to India, I was looking for a teacher, I wanted to get into practice more, and I had gone around to different ashrams, I ended up in Bodhgaya, the little village where the Buddha was enlightened, met Munindraji, my first Dharma teacher, and one of the very first things he said was, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. That was all, and it was so simple, and it made so much sense to me. There was no big rigmarole. There was no big cultural form that I had to drop into. If we want to understand our minds, big mind, heart mind, what do we need to do? We need to sit down and observe, become aware. It's that simple. doesn't mean it's easy, but it's simple. So all the forms, all the techniques, all the methods that we'll use and talk about during this retreat all are in the service of this investigation. This is the aspect of the science of the mind. It's very exact, it's very precise, it's very lawful, it can be replicated by each one of us. And so there are certain tools which we can develop and master in this process of learning to observe more deeply and clearly and profoundly. The first of them, the first of these tools or methods, is the simplicity of this form of sitting and walking. You know, we come together here, what do you do all day? Sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk. There's not much else happening here. And the very simplicity of it, not being engaged in a lot of our other usual activities, the very simplicity of the form actually begins to reveal how much is going on inside of us. Because usually in the busyness of our lives, we're so completely distracted from what's going on inside In the simplicity of this form, sitting and walking throughout the day, we create another or we use another tool. We give ourselves some primary object of attention, like the breath or a sound or the movement in walking. And we develop our attention. We learn how to sustain our attention on this primary object. And we keep coming back to it. And this coming back to an object of attention is a very universal method of spiritual development. I'd like to read you something from uh, one of the Catholic saints. I'm not too knowledgeable about Catholic saints, but I I think he wasn't a too distant one. Uh, Maybe some of you probably know St. Francis de Sales. I'm not even sure I'm saying it correctly. But anyway, this is what he wrote. If the heart wanders or is distracted, bring it back to the point quite gently. And even if you did nothing in the whole of your hour but bring your heart back, though it went away every time you brought it back, your hour would be very well employed. It's the same workings of the mind in all of us, and the training is the same. We create a simplicity of form, of sitting and walking and sitting and walking, so we are not distracting ourselves with a lot of other activity. We give ourselves a basic primary object of attention, the breath, a movement, the sound. And every time the mind wanders, gently bring it back. And even if it wanders, every time we bring it back, if we give energy to our intention to come back to the point the hour is very well employed. And just from doing this, this most simple of techniques and methods, and even doing it, especially those of you who just came last night, and certainly those of you who have been here, but already you have had the first insight of insight meditation. You may not have realized it. It's the first and perhaps the most important. And that is, from doing this very simple method of bringing the mind back every time it wanders, I feel completely confident in saying that each and every one of you has had the insight into the wandering nature of the mind. (laughs) Has anybody not experienced that? (laughs) Because it's the first and most obvious thing that we see about our minds. We see how often we get distracted, get lost, get caught up in thoughts and fantasies and daydreams and planning and over and over again. We see how often we are actually in a state where we don't know what's going on because we're caught up in some mind world. Don't underestimate this insight because most people do not know this about their own minds. You go up to somebody who has never sat down and actually observe their mind, and you ask them, does your mind wander? Oh no, I know just what I'm doing. <laughs> because normally, when, before we take a look, we don't know that this is what's happening. And it's so amazing. We give the mind a very simple object, the breath. I mean, it's not complicated. In, out, rising, falling, and we take one breath, two breaths, three breaths, We're off and running. It's like we hop on this train of association. We don't know that we've hopped on the train. We have no idea where the train is going. And then five minutes, ten minutes, half an hour later, we find ourselves at some other station, in some other inner world, inner environment. It might be pleasant, it might be unpleasant. You know, we might have been caught up in some internal drama. And it's all because we were not attentive to the arising of that thought. (laughs) Being with our own minds is something like going to a movie theater where they change the movie every minute and a half? (laughs) I mean, would you pay seven bucks to go to that movie? (laughs) Probably not. And yet here we are. I mean, this is what our mind is doing. We're just getting lost over and over again in these movies of the mind. And you know that moment when we actually do go to the movies and are totally immersed in the story, which is the whole point of going. That's why we go. But then that moment when you come out of the theater, you know, and it's, like, it's almost like this little reality shift, and you realize, oh yeah, that was just a movie. you know. And there is a kind of broadening, or awakening, or brightening of the mind from having been totally absorbed in the story to a broader, more open sense of reality. Well, every time we wake up from being lost, wake up from being carried away, when we hop off the train of association, it's like that. It's a, it's a mini moment of awakening. You know, we're waking up from being asleep. So this first insight into the nature of our minds, that our minds wander a lot, that we're very distracted, much more distracted than we even had realized, it leads us to understand the importance of stabilizing our attention somewhat, of stabilizing our awareness. Why is it so important? Because often, we're not simply lost or daydreaming or wandering, but in our lives, very often, we're acting out all these habit patterns. These thoughts and feelings and emotions become the motives for our actions and it's all happening unconsciously. Now when we look around in the world and we see so many places of suffering, of so many different kinds, when we look to understand, well, what is going on here? Why is there so much suffering? a good part of that suffering comes from people acting out the habit patterns of fear, of greed, of hatred. When these forces, when these habit patterns are operating in the mind and there is no awareness, then there's no choice and there's the simple acting out of these states which cause suffering to oneself and to lots of other people. I mean, just think how different the world would be if people were not motivated by greed. It would be a very different world we lived in. The important point here is that we need to understand that this is not simply happening out there. It's happening within us. We are acting out all of these various conditioned habit patterns of mind. So we need to awaken within ourselves. I'll just tell one little story, which some of you have heard before, and it illustrates, in a somewhat trivial way, this point. I was on retreat here at IMS And I was going through the lunch line, going quite mindfully, I thought. You know, those of you who have been here a lot know that sometimes before certain dishes, uh, there's a little sign, moderation please. And so on this particular day, and for some reason, of course, that sign moderation please always appears in front of one's favorite dish. That, that goes without saying. Okay, so I'm going through the line, moderation, please. It was sesame spinach. <laughs> One of my favorites. I'm going through the line. I see the sign, moderation, please. And the first thought that enters my mind is, how much can I take and it still be moderate? <laughs> And then I just, uh, again, just mechanically, I just started taking and taking, you know, pushing the edge, pushing the edge of moderation. And of course, two minutes later, after I had loaded my plate with sesame spinach, I felt horribly guilty, you know. And all through that lunch, I was kind of looking back to see if people were getting their <laughs> sesame spinach or whether they had run out and. It's just a simple little thing. (laughs) But it's indicative of how when we're not paying attention, when we're not really being mindful, we just do all of these actions which can have unskillful or harmful consequences. Fortunately, that time there was enough. Uh, But it's worth learning to pay attention even on these little things and certainly on the actions which are even more consequential. So we practice. We practice with the sitting and walking. We practice with the primary object, coming back again and again. Every time the mind goes off, very gently coming back. And there's a certain intentionality there. So that we're not sitting with a kind of lazy mind that is simply indulging in the wandering mind, It's not that the mind is going to stop wandering very much, but it's really a question of our attitude. Are we engaged in the training of bringing it back, or are we just sitting, kind of indulging the daydreaming? To activate the practice, to make it alive, to make it a training, we really have to have a strong sense of purpose. It's the reason I'm here, what I'm doing is to keep coming back. And by doing this, slowly the mind does get trained. The mind does start to wander a little less. Things get a little more quiet inside. There's a little more ease. It is possible to develop some concentration. And I can say this with great authority because when I started my practice, I had no concentration. I would just sit and think all the time. I would just sit down, have a nice hour's thought, <laughs> get up, and it went quite quickly, and it was enjoyable, and I had a good time. So I'm not one of those people, and there are you know, just a few here and there, who seem to have a natural ability. They sit down and their minds are concentrated. It wasn't like that at all, but I had tremendous faith and I didn't have any doubt about what I wanted to do. And so I just kept bringing the mind back again and again and again, both in the vipassana, did the metta practice, which was a tremendous help, for the development of samadhi, and over the years, lo and behold, the mind's a little bit quieter. It actually can concentrate to some degree. Okay, the first tool of practice, simplicity of form, sitting and walking, primary object. The second tool of practice is slowing down and working with the continuity of awareness. You know, mostly in our lives, we're just rushing through our day. The beauty of the retreat is that there's nothing you need to do except be mindful. That's your job for nine days. As we slow down, it allows us to feel things more deeply. I'll give you a very simple example. Maybe we'll do the experiment. It's kind of a follow-up to what we did this morning. If you just move your arm for a moment... And just become aware that you're moving. Does anybody not know they're moving their arm? Okay, so we're all mindful that we're moving, right? Okay, now I want to take it to another level. Move your arm, and in addition to knowing that you're moving, feel the sensations of the movement you might have to move more slowly to really open to that. Do you see the difference? We can be mindful and know we're moving, and that's pretty good because we're present. But another level is to slow down so that we are actually opening and feeling the subtle sensations of the movement. And as we do that, a whole other world begins to open up for us we begin to understand the body in a much deeper way. It takes going a little slower, paying attention, not rushing through things. And so I would like to encourage, exhort, (laughs) whatever, suggest, request, that you really take your time while you're here Each step should be taken mindfully. Everything you do should be done with attention. It's not a question of just the sitting practice and the walking practice. It's everything as you get up from your sitting posture and you walk out, as you're doing yogi job, taking a shower, whatever, putting your shoes on. When Upandita first came here, this was our Burmese teacher, very fierce, strict, demanding teacher. He had zero interest in making us feel good. (laughs) I mean, he didn't. And he certainly didn't care what we thought of him. And his only interest was in keeping us very, very mindful. And Sharon tells the story of going in for interviews. And she'd go in and we would have You know, kind of notes on our deepest experiences. And so she went in and had her notes prepared and she bowed, got ready to give her report. And all Upandita said, What did you experience when you brushed your teeth? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) She left. That was the end of the interview. Uh, The next day, go in and she really paid attention to brushing her teeth, all ready to report on that. He didn't ask about that. What did you experience when you put your shoes on? Hadn't paid attention. That was the end of the interview. Sharon said this went on for weeks. <laughs> and all, all of these other deep experiences that she was having, he, he had no interest in. But it was a fantastic training. And by the end of that time, Sharon was the queen of slowness. <laughs> I mean, She was moving. It like, took her an hour to get from here to the dining room. <laughs> So you might not reach that uh, extreme of slowness but I would really like to encourage you to slow down a lot, to pay attention to each of these small movements, small activities because that's what in a very powerful and direct and relatively quick way develops strong concentration and mindfulness. It's really bringing the practice to another level. <laughs> I want to read you something about the power of observation. And this was a story told about the Swiss naturalist Louis Agassiz, who was a great natural scientist, and his training of his students. So, this is his student, his name was Samuel Scudder, writing about meeting Agassiz and training with him. Agassiz intended, Scudder said, to teach the student to see, to observe. And he intended to put the burden of the study on them. Study nature, he said, not books. So, the initial interview at an end, Agassi would ask the student when they would like to begin. If the answer was now, the student was immediately presented with a dead fish. Usually, a very long dead, pickled, evil smelling specimen, personally selected by the master from one of the wide mouthed jars that lined the shelves. The, fl- the fish was placed before the student in a tin pan. He was to look at the fish, the student was told, whereupon Agassiz would leave, not to return until later in the day, if at all. Samuel Scudder, one of the students, described the experience as one of the most memorable turning points of his life. In ten minutes I had seen all that could be seen in that fish. Half an hour passed, an hour, another hour, the fish began to look loathsome. I turned it over and around, looked it in the face, ghastly. From behind, beneath, above, sideways, at three-quarters view, just as ghastly. I was in despair. I might not use a magnifying glass. Instruments of all kinds were prohibited. My two hands, my two eyes, and the fish. Seemed a most limited field. I pushed my finger down its throat to feel how sharp the teeth were. I began to count the scales in different rows until I was convinced that that was nonsense. At last, a happy thought occurred to me. I would draw the fish, and now, with surprise, I began to discover new features in the creature. When Agassiz returned and listened to Scudder count what he had observed, his only comment was that the young man must look again. I was piqued. I was mortified. Still more of that wretched fish. But now I set myself to the task with a will and discovered one thing after another. The afternoon passed quickly and toward its close, the professor inquired, do you see it yet? No, I replied, I am certain I do not, but I see how little I saw before. The day following, having thought of the fish most of the night, Scudder had a brainstorm. The fish he announced to Agassi had symmetrical sides with paired organs. Of course, of course, August, he said, obviously pleased. Scudder asked what he might do next, and August replied, Look at your fish. In Scudder's case, the le- lesson lasted a full three days. Look, look, look was the repeated injunction and the best lesson he ever had. A legacy of inestimable value, which he could not buy and with which he could not be parted. So we're fortunate. We don't have to look at a dead fish, <laughs> just our breath and bodies and our own minds. But can we look with that kind of intentness, that kind of interest, that kind of willingness again and again and again? Because as we do, more and more is revealed to us. As our minds become quieter, as we become still, we begin to understand our motivations in a much clearer and deeper way. Through understanding our motives more clearly, we begin to make wiser choices in our lives, choices that lead to happiness rather than to more suffering. And without this awareness, if we simply remain in our lives, in our usual mode of distraction, we are simply acting out the various patterns of our conditioning. So it's tremendously important to employ these tools of practice. know, the simplicity of the form of sitting and walking, working with a primary object, coming back again and again, slowing down, in order to pay attention more fully, in order to open more fully. Continuity of awareness, so that the day becomes seamless. That our whole day becomes the practice, rather than our practice being something we're doing in the day. So this is all from the perspective of meditation as a science of the mind. It's exact, it's precise, we're observed, We're learning how to observe and to feel things carefully and deeply. There's another perspective which is equally important, and that is the understanding that meditation is also an art. There's an art to the practice. What this means is that we not only see what it is that's arising, we're not only cultivating this exactness and precision of observation, but we are also learning about how we're relating to what's arising. And so in this sense, we could think of meditation as being the art of true relationship. And it's quite amazing. Because what we learn about intimacy and about relationship in the solitude of our practice, to that extent we bring those same understandings to our life of relationship in the world. It's all to be discovered right here. And what you have probably seen today and will certainly see during the rest of this time, is that there are many different ways of relating to experience. We can relate to experience with grasping and clinging and aversion and likes and dislikes and judgment and reactivity. Ways of relating. We can relate to experience with openness, with acceptance, with gentleness, with equanimity. Very different experiences then. A simple arena for your inquiry. Pay attention to how you're relating to the breath. Simple object, breathing in and out, in and out. We can get very precise in our understanding of the sensations of the breath, either here or at the movement. But on a more subtle level, can we look at the way the mind is relating to it. Do we want it to be a certain way? Do we think that the breath should be nice and long and smooth and when it's short and rough and quick, we're unhappy? Or can we be with each breath exactly as it is, without any agenda at all? This reflects the nature of our mind. This reflects the art of relationship. Is there indifference in the mind? Oh, here's the same old boring breath again. You know, and where we're really just not paying very careful attention because of apathy, because of indifference, because we don't care. That's another kind of relationship. We have it with the breath, we have it with people. It's to be learned right here. How are we paying attention? What's the quality of it? There's a particular meditator's disease which I discovered and named. (laughs) (laughs) The prerogative of (laughs) discovery. The name of the disease is more or less mindfulness. Are you mindful? Uh, More or less. (laughs) And the nature of this disease is that we're kind of present. You know, we're there, we're not totally gone, but we're not really there. We're not fully there, we're not fully engaged. And one sign of this particular disease is if as you're breathing, you're noting out when the breath comes in and in when the breath goes out, that's a good signal. You know, you're kind of there with the breath, but so pay attention to that. You know, and that becomes a wake up call. Okay, get reconnected again, come back again. Is there too much effort? Just as there can be too much indifference, we can be striving too hard, we can be holding on too hard. And all this does is make us more tense and more uptight. So we need to pay attention to this art of the practice, not only what's happening, the breath, but how are we relating to it? Are we relating with connection, with a full connection, but without grasping or holding or expectation? Are we impatient? Are we waiting for something to happen? Are we waiting for the next breath to happen? Or is it possible to be with the breath as another arising appearance in the vast open space of mind? Sounds good, doesn't it? (laughs) Well, one of the reasons that we start the practice with sound is because very often sound is an entree to that experience of the mind that's open, empty, relaxed, attentive, without efforting. Because when you're sitting, right now, just sit back. Sounds are appearing. Subtle sounds. Do you need to do anything in order to hear When we're undistracted, it's amazing, it's a miracle. When we're undistracted, the hearing happens completely spontaneously and effortlessly. We're not doing anything to create the hearing because the nature of the mind is awareness. So when we're present, when we're not lost, sounds arise and they're known. Okay. Having that experience with sound can you allow each breath to arise in just that same way. Let the sensation of each breath appear. There's nothing that we need to do except remain undistracted. And then you begin to get a sense of the easy flow, the easy rhythm of each breath, whether it's the in-out or the rising and falling, appearing in the same effortless way that sounds appear. This is learning about the art of relationship, the art of the practice. There's a lot more that I wanted to talk about, but we'll leave it for next time. I'll end by um, mentioning something that has been incredibly rich and transforming for my practice. And that is something which we'll talk more about during the retreat, but it's a motivation, an attitude, which in Buddhism is called Bodhijitta. Bodhi means wisdom or enlightenment, awakening. Jitta is the word for heart-mind. So bodhijitta means the heart-mind of awakening. What it refers to in this context is the understanding that in a fundamental way we are not practicing for ourselves alone and that it's possible to cultivate and to nurture the motivation, the seed of that motivation, that our practice of awakening, of liberation, of freedom, that our motivation for practice be for the benefit and the welfare and the happiness and the liberation of all beings. This is a very powerful turning for us because it takes our practice out of the domain of self-reference, which is itself, taking it out of the domain of self-reference, is itself the expression of the liberated mind. We free ourselves from the prison of self. So in a very simple way, in a very humble way, At the beginning of a sitting, we could make the aspiration, may this sitting, may my efforts in this sitting, be for the benefit of all. At the end of a sitting, we could dedicate the merit of that. May the merit of this sitting or the walking be dedicated to the awakening of all beings. Very simple, it's just planting and watering this very tiny seed of bodhicitta, that grows into an amazingly fruitful and abundant tree. The understanding that we're not doing this just for ourselves, but that we're liberating our own minds to benefit all others. Let's sit for a few minutes, please. to read something in closing by a Scottish explorer of the Himalayas. His name was W.H. Murray. He wrote, Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. At the moment one definitely commits oneself, then Providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. of events issues from the decision raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance which no one could have dreamed would have come their way. I've learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. This is the spirit of our practice. A couple of announcements.